Well, it's hard to believe we have a month already in the books, in the month of the year 2024. And so as we enter into the month of February, it's, it's been our custom for many years to please give you the opportunity to uh, raise a question for an open forum discussion this morning. Um, Vivian raised uh, something in a reading. Uh, we talked about it a little bit, and uh, I'm not certain that that's direction I'd love to go this morning, but I may. Something that has been on my mind, but it has been on my mind in terms of a fuller uh, treatment of matters uh, related to the things that Vivian brought up. Um, but does anybody have any questions? I have a backup plan, as I never generally do, but uh, I'll give you the floor if you'd like to raise a question this morning. Yes, Sue, please. Okay. You know, it means one thing at the time we turn to Christ and we repent of our sins, but for ongoing in our life and what we should expect and what, yeah, because, you know, some people have a very loose view of, like, well, I have to do is say sorry and go on doing what I'm doing kind of thing, and to go into what it really means. Yeah. Repent. The question concerns repentance and what it means, and we live certainly in an age in which there's lots of different ideas and notions about what repentance is. Um, I was in a Bible college one time where I had a professor who said that repentance simply means changing your mind about having Jesus as your Savior. And uh, interesting notion. Uh, and that's a notion that comes from the fact that the Greek word for repentance, metanoia, can mean a change of mind. But generally speaking, it's more than that. It's not used often just in the sense of just a rearrangement of the mental furniture. And the fact that the word metanoia in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible translates a Hebrew word called shuv. I think I've mentioned it before, even in the Psalm uh, 19 that we've been studying, when it says the word of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul, that there is a, uh, that's a, 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 the root there is the uh, Hebrew word shuv. And um, that restoration of the soul is speaking about a returning to God. It's speaking about wherever we are in our lives at any given point. We may have strayed far from God, from the thoughts of God and from the presence of God, from the word of God. It's God's word that is continually calling us back. And so, the, really, the idea of shuv is to turn. It's to turn from whatever course we're in and return to the God who calls us into the fellowship of himself and his Son and the Spirit through the Gospel. And so, that's a word that can speak of the initial turn that Christians make or that people make when they hear the Gospel. The Apostle Paul gives... Uh, a statement in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 that has to do with the experience of the Thessalonians when Paul had come to the, their city and had preached the, the gospel. And uh, let's look and see what he says about the way they received God's word in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says in the words of verse 4, We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Well, how did Paul know that? Did they have some kind of uh, just bounce in their step that made them appear that they were chosen by God? Was there something in their facial appearance? Or did they make uh, strange noises at night that made them clearly marked out as? No, no, nothing like that. It's that our word, our gospel, he says, came to you, not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You ha and he says that happened as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. Isn't that interesting? That their faith had to do with the kind of way in which Paul conducted himself among them. Um, the kind of men they were. They were not the kind of men that's looking to sell you a bill of goods. 
not the kind of men that are just looking to advance our our kingdom, our reputation. We've come with purity of mind and heart and intention to bring to you the message of God, to bring to you the gospel of God's salvation. And they saw the sort of people we are, we, we, we were, and it opened their ears to the things we had to say. Uh, but he says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. And that's always a mark that God's at work, is that affliction attended the reception of the gospel, but also the joy of the Holy Spirit was present as well. Uh, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And really, that's the first demonstration of a repentant soul, is that we leave the idols that we've served, the gods that we have given allegiance to, that we turn away from them, that we turn back to the living and the true God. A lot of times we make sin the issue of this matter of repentance, to feel deep contrition and deep sorrow in, the, in your heart with reference to sin, with reference to God. And I'm not saying that's not a part of it, but I'm saying that's, you know, a lot of people have emotional crises in their soul, feeling a sense of guilt and unworthiness. And, but the question is, have you turned? It's not what you feel. It's not what you sense within. It's have you turned? Have you left the gods that you've served to serve the living and the true God? That's the issue. It's not your feelings and it's not um, uh, anything having to do necessarily with the sense of guilt that you have. There's a time in my Christian life I felt like I wasn't feeling... I remember when I first came to Trinity Church down in, in Montville, the sermons were just so heart-piercing and almost every sermon I heard for months just left, left me devastated <laughs> how much of a sinner I was and how much I stood in need of the gospel of Christ. Uh, and, you know, that's okay to an extent, except when you're thinking that's the measure of Christianity, just always feeling devastated before God with reference to your sins. Because if you want to feel that way, it's not going to happen all all the whole of your life. Pretty soon you get used to that. You get used to the kind of preaching that you've heard. Then the question is not so much what you feel, it's a question of where you turn. Who do you turn to? It's our face and posture towards the Lord. That's the essential thing. And when our face and posture is toward the Lord, you don't have to tell me about how terrible things sin is. I, I know that. It's a sense that you gain in the presence of a holy God, that anything that's not holy is, is, is to be run from. Woe is me, I'm, a, I'm undone. Uh, Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Well, how'd you reason that one out? Someone come to you with the four spiritual laws and reason you into that position because we're all sinners anyway and you know you're a sinner too. Oh yeah, I guess I am. No, no. He said, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I've seen God. And in the face of who God is, I've come to see my sin. And there's a sense in which when we come to Christ, we come to hear the voice of God. We come to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And it's because we come to see God and know God and behold God that we are attracted to God and we turn away from the vile things of this world. And we see everything that's not consistent with godliness as something we need to run from and avoid. And it seems to me that repentance, we do it as much as we, we really see God. And we're, and we're turning to Him and we're returning to Him and we're coming back to Him. And I think it's out of that reality that repentance becomes 
just the practice of our lives as God's people. You know, again, Luther said that when Jesus said, and he used the, the Latin version of the Bible, um, um, it's got, it got tra- uh, I'm sorry, it was a Latin version that translated metanoia, unfortunately, with the Latin penance. And, uh, but he s- still saw that and in the 95 articles. That's what he said, that what Jesus said, that you should be penitent. He wasn't talking about just something to mention one time and, 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 you're, and, and you're free. It's, it's a way of life. It's a way of life. It's a way of life to live before God, to be humble before God, to be aware of the presence of God. And that leads me into the thing I had, did have prepared for this morning. Um, but is that an acceptable answer? Is that, you know, what, what, when we're living as we should and we have a sense of the health of our soul directed where it should be, in the Lord then it seems to me repentance is something we, we, we just do in the way of turning from and turning to. Because we've turned to God. And so we've turned away from. And we want to continue to turn away from anything and everything that detracts from the health and vigor of the soul. So that's, that's just how I would see it. You know, I, I would be very reluctant to be making repentance something of a matter of... Uh, of a gospel work. You got to gin up sufficient repentance to merit the forgiveness of God. No. Again, I think it comes out of the reality that we come to faith. We come to face God as he is in truth in the gospel. And facing God and being in the presence of God, we see that everything that is part of a dying and dead and fallen world is something we need to renounce. So we turn. We turn away from the, the idols of this world and we turn to the living and true God. And, and it, it's important, but I think we see that because it's not so much what we're running from, it's what we're running towards. We're running towards the Lord. We're coming to the Lord. And Endeavoring to be faithful to him and to be faithful servants before him. It's the whole idea of living in the presence of God. So, again, I think that's how, what I would say is that it, the, the meaning of the, of, the, of the Hebrew words is, is that of turning. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Seek him. Turn to him. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord. And he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly heal. So again, I think the call to turn to, the implication is turn away. So you turn away from that, so that you might turn towards. You can't face two directions. You only face in one direction. Either beholding God in the face of Jesus Christ, or you're turning to the world and saying, I love you and I want to serve you and I want to please you. It's one or the other. So, yes, Eric, please. So, would you say uh, faith and repentance are connected? Oh, yes. Uh, two sides of the same coin. <laughs> and, and, you know, people argue what has priority over the other. Again, I think the call of the gospel is a call to faith. I mean, that's the thing that more often than not is evidenced and manifested, but it's always a repenting faith because it's turning. It's turning from sin to God, turning from idols to God, turning from the world to God. It's turning from all that is not God to God. So the implication is that all faith is a repenting faith. But all repentance is a believing repentance on the other side. Repentance is believing repentance. It's not repentance as a, as a, as a, a, gospel, as, as a work. It's, re, it's, it's out of faith. It's out of faith we turn. It's out of faith we, we, we embrace the Lord and walk in his ways. These things. It never says by, by repentance Abraham did these mighty things or by repentance all the people of God did these mighty things. It's by faith. They did those things. 
This faith is that positive part that really ensures the other part because we're turning to God. And you can't turn to God and not have at least a transformed perspective about your attachment to the things of the world, your attachment to idols, and your attachment to um, the ways and, and, and spirit of, of the age. It's, in, it's incompatible, I would think. So at least that's what I would emphasize. I would emphasize the believing part, although making very clear that the believing part always does involve what you turn away from, that you might turn to. The living God, but again, I think of the you know Paul in uh, Acts twenty when he gives to the Ephesian elders an account of his ministry. He brings in both aspects of it: um, repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Peter speaks about repentance. He doesn't seem to indicate anything about faith, but he does call the people to baptism, and baptism would be the response of faith. Repent, every one of you, and be baptized. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the, unto the remission of your sins. That seems to me that the call to baptism is a call to faith. It's a call to identity with Jesus and attachment to Jesus. I think repentance is emphasized because the people were aware of the fact that they were the ones that's in the uh, city of Jerusalem that basically said to the Romans, crucify him. And uh, you, know, you, with, uh, you, he says, through... Uh, 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 by means of wicked hands, you crucified him and, and, and you put him to death. They were gripped in the heart with that reality of their rejection of their Messiah. And Peter says, all hope is not lost. I denied him. All hope wasn't lost for me. Repent. Turn away from and turn towards the living and true God. Repent. Turn away and belief. Be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the, unto the remission of sins. Okay. Uh, anybody have a burning issue in another area of concern or need to get fo- uh, a little more fine, fine-tuning on this? Yeah, I think Tim? this kind of goes in with that. But, you know, I'm sorry, could you speak up with well, us a little bit? kind of goes in what we were talking about. But, uh, but you know, there's we, we struggle, some of us struggle, I guess a lot of us do, with certain, what they call besetting sins, you know, something that we deal with all the time. And uh, could you just speak to that as far as like an, uh, you know, like an encouragement of the fact that even though we wrestle with those things, we're still turning to the Lord to, to give us grace to, to deal with them. Yeah, I mean... Because we get, I mean, I get personally discouraged when I see a certain aspect of you know, problems that I have in my thinking as to you know, temptation to sin or a sin that I deal with all the time. Yeah, let me, let me try to just address this whole matter of what's called besetting sins or the sins that trouble us. I would simply say focusing upon sin never helped you kill it. It can't help you put it away. You need to be focusing upon God's grace in Christ and His resources. That He is the one who gives us His Holy Spirit and He gives us forgiveness and He gives us His grace. And we need to be turning to Him. It's, it's in the power of the Lord that we triumph. Be, be strong in the Lord, Paul says, and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God. It's from the vantage point, not of obsession with our sins. You know, there's a hymn that says, I see my sin in all its badness. Okay, fine. You see your sin in all of its badness. What's that going to do for you? See your sin in all of its... I'm not saying don't do it. You you can't ignore the fact of your sin. If you want to sing about it, fine. I see my sin in all of its badness. But if you're going to sing about it, Sing the next line. And also him who sets me free. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to go through life triumphing over every single sin in our lives. There's certain things that God leaves us to have in our lives. 
Because if we didn't have those things in our lives, we would be guilty of more sins in other ways. Like pride. You know, we might have all kinds of recriminations about sexual temptations, about the temptation just to blurt out with your mouth the first thing that comes to your mind and you're always sinning in your words. And you can make those things the, the obsession of your life and just be so caught up with, how do I deal with this? How do I deal with this? How do I deal with this? And that you, just seem, you, you just bleed out of your soul every confidence in God, in God, in God through Christ. Um, and I think if God gave you victory over those things that you were so defeated by, man, you could, we couldn't live with you. <laughs> you would see yourself as so holy, as so above everybody else who's just in the pathway of struggle. You ever with a Christian who just thinks everything in the Christian life is so easy? <laughs> they're just not the people that you like to be around a whole lot because first of all you think they're lying <laughs> they're not really being real and they're not really being honest and transparent and second of all it's nice to have people that can sympathize with some of the struggles that you are going through and help us because all of us are struggling at all kinds of different places and points and Again, but you, you know, it's a question of what are you obsessed with? Are you obsessed with your sins or are you obsessed with the Savior from sin? It's a question of where, where the focus lies. Um, again, I, I've never thought that focusing in upon my sin helped me deal with it, helped me to sin less. Sometimes I think it's, it's you have sin in your in your mind. Oh, oh, oh I got to deal with it. Got to deal with it. Got to deal with it. Maybe just forget about it for a minute. Forget about that whole way of existence even lives or the things you that are haunting you. And maybe just say, now, Lord, I turn to you. I turn to you. You are the great Savior from sin. You are the one who gives us grace and power. Um, that sin would have not dominion over me. Maybe I need to be thinking about him more than I think about my sin. Um, uh, back in the day, Al Martin gave, uh, I think, a really good illustration of this whole sort of thing I'm t we're talking about. And it had to do with uh, some guy who has a, a problem with a, a skin eruption <laughs> that's upon his hand. It just blew up. And all you can do is see it. And it's horrible. And it's ugly. And it's unsightly. And I, I don't want to live with it. I, I got to do something to deal with it. And so I get all the salves to rub on it. And I get all the cleansers to clean it really, really good. And I do all these things to try to address the problem of that. And then finally you break down, you go to the doctor, and the doctor says, you know, the problem is you've got a vitamin deficiency. <laughs> the problem is not external here. The problem is internal in the general health of your body. You've got a vitamin deficiency. And what you need to do is focus less on this, and let's start getting well. Let's start getting physically well. If the problem is inward and not outward, then maybe you've got to stop obsessing with the outward and address the whole matter of the inward. And you address the problem of the inner life in the presence of God. By seeking Him. By making Him a confidant in the midst of the troubles. Can I get a minute to the thing I prepared? Because I think it, it kind of cl clicks into this really, really, really well. Um, and I'm trying to give you the abbreviation of this. Uh, I threw you a bit of a curb when we enter into 2024. When I mentioned the fact that there are the clustered psalms, or there are clusters of psalms, along with the five books, along with collections like David and Asaph and Sons of Korah, and all these things, that there seems to be these um, clusters in which there are related psalms. And they're not related so much by titles. They're related by their themes. And many times when they're clustered, they're together. They're together in a particular section. 
And um, I'm not getting it through in my own mind at this point, but I'm, re- I'm really beginning to think more and more, although I haven't figured it all out, that the cluster idea may be the organizing principles of the book, or at least a lot of it. At least a lot of it. Um, I've already gone through many times telling you that I do believe that Psalm 1 and 2 is the entrance way into the book because it's talking about blessedness. And it's talked about, talks about how the blessings of creation become restored through the Torah and through the Messiah. It's the, it's the Messianic King in, 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 in Psalm 2, and it's the Torah, meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. And what do we find? We find a restoration to the garden. He should be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, bears fruit in season, leaf does not wither, whatever he does prospers. There is the blessing of creation that is restored through faith in God's word and through adherence and loyalty to and submission to God's Messiah or the King, Jesus. I will set my King upon my holy hill of Zion. So I think those two things are vital to the whole question of how God restores the world from its sin back to what he designed the world to be. And then when we begin with chapter 3, I mean, there's a whole story that the book of the Psalms tells that kind of tracks the story of the Bible. But where it really begins in the early part of the book of the Psalms, in Psalm 3 to Psalm 14. And what you have here is a cluster of Psalms in which in almost every single Psalm, there's a mention of the foe, the enemy. The evil person, the fool, the person that is perplexing and distressing and threatening and persecuting the righteous person. You might say, these are the presence of my enemies cluster. Now, I don't have time to go through it with you, but it's 3, 1 to 7, it's 4, 2 to 6, it's 5, 5, 6, and 8. Psalm 6, 8, and 10. Psalm 7, 1, 6, and 9. I give you all this if you want it later. Psalm 8, 2. Psalm 9, 3, 6, and 13. Psalm 10 and verse 2. Psalm 11 and verse 2. Psalm 12 and verse 1. Psalm 13, 2, and 4. Enemies. Foes. Oppressors. Attacking. The kingdom. Through the king through the Davidic king, the Psalms of David, the Davidic figure, the king, is being distressed because of the presence of my enemies. See, the presence of my enemies cluster. We're talking about enemies, aren't we? We're talking about besetting sins. We're talking about the things that trouble our souls, the things that attack us when we talk about besetting sins. What do we do in the midst of such enemies as besetting sins. Well, you don't lose your sense of the presence of the besetting sins. There's a cluster of reality and truth that focuses upon that reality. But that's not the ultimate reality. That's not the final reality. That's not the most important reality because what happens in 15 to 24 is you leave the presence of my enemies cluster and you come into the presence of God cluster. I think that's really what you find. You come into the presence of God cluster. Psalm 15, 1. Psalm 16, 1, 5, 7, 8, and 11. Psalm 17, 2, 5, 15. Psalm 18, 2. Psalm 20, about the whole of it, presence of God. 21.6, some of these actually mention the presence of God. And Psalm 22 is an interesting one, because that's a psalm that seems to move from the sense of the forsakenness of God, the absence of God, the lack of divine presence, to the return of divine presence, to the restoration of divine presence. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is where Psalm, the psalm begins, and then it turns into, I will praise you in the midst of the brethren. Uh, there's a restoration of the sense of God's nearness and presence and help. 
Psalm 23 and verse 5, and that's really interesting because the presence of enemies comes back in that psalm. But it says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. The enemies haven't gone, but God has come. We live and exist in the presence of God. And the, the enemies are present. Let's get out the dainties. Let's get out the sweets. Let's get out the full provision of divine blessing that he places upon the table for us as his people to dine upon. Let's have, let's have supper. Let's have dinner. Let's have dinner in God's presence. He's the host. He's the one that lays the table. He's the one that brings out the fatted, the fatted calf. He's the one that brings out all of the blessings of his salvation. And let's have a party. Let's rejoice. Let's have a banquet. Let's have a feast in the presence of enemies. Because we're in the presence of God. He prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. The presence of God makes all the difference about the presence of enemies. So, again, I'm not saying that those things are not important to be concerned about. But it's not the greatest thing to be concerned about. The enemies are there. The cluster of enemies are there. But the Lord is there. And that's the thing of surpassing importance to recognize. God has not abandoned me. Even when I feel like praying the 22nd Psalm and saying, Where are you, Lord? You're so far from my groaning. You're so far from my... My concerns were, why have you forsaken me? God hasn't forsaken you. And his presence is near. And we're called upon to approach his presence. Both in the way of the temple, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord, who shall dwell in God's holy place, or in the sense of, even after death, I will awaken your presence. In his presence is fullness of joy. Psalm 16. Or in the reality of just the life of prayer. We draw near. One thing I have desired of the Lord. I also seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I don't think he's looking to take up residence in the temple. He's just looking to commune with the God of the temple. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I will know God's presence eternally, and I will know God's presence following me with his goodness and mercy all the days of my life. So it seems to me, David has a clear sense of where you go in the midst of enemies. What your perspective should be in the presence of enemies. Now certainly in the presence of enemies, cluster, he's praying about the enemies. Destroy them, Lord! Smash their teeth! Put them into Sheol. The wicked shall be turned into Sheol. All the nations that forget God. He's, he's praying the imprecatory Psalms against them. He's praying that God would destroy them. That God would make it clear that he favors the righteous and not the wicked. But ultimately, those enemies don't go away. They don't go away. They're with David all the days of his life. And, and it's unrealistic to say, Lord, you know, wave a magic wand and let it all go away. That's what you call magical thinking. Don't be magical thinking. Don't be doing that. We live in the reality of a fallen world. We live in the reality of the presence of indwelling sin. We live in the reality that we struggle as God's people with the realities of the world, the flesh, and the devil. But what's the answer? It's not to focus on the world, the flesh, and the devil. I've got to study up on the world, the flesh, and the devil. Please don't do that. <laughs> don't make that the focus of your life study. Oh, my ambition is to know more about the flesh, to know more about the world, to know more about the devil. I think you know enough. <laughs> the question is to know God. To be strong in the Lord and the power of his might to put on the whole armor of God that we may stand against the wiles of the devil and having done all to stand. So. Well, that's how I see it, folks. And um, 
I wanted to share that with you. And you know, it took me shorter time to share that with you than I thought, because all the material in my paper I've already said, and that we got still 20 minutes to go. So, <laughs> any questions about clusters? Oh, I'm trying to think in terms of the the next section in the Psalms that begins at 25 and following, and. I don't have clear answers just at this point, except I do see um, sort of a return of the notion of divine instruction and the divine path or the way that God calls his people to walk, which would be very much like the first psalm that blesses the man who walks, not in the path of the ungodly, stand in the way of sinners. Uh, The path or the way of life and how it's Torah, his delight is in the Lord of the law, the law of the Lord, the Torah of the Lord, and then he, he meditates day and night. That's God's instruction. That God instruct, instructs sinners in the way. That God instructs His people, and we're not to be like the mule that will not receive instruction. We're to be re- receptive to divine instruction. I think a lot of those psalms that follow, to one degree or another, uh, sound that note. I'm not convinced yet it's the key to understand it as a cluster, as I would think there is a cluster, in my mind, of presence of enemies in 3 to 14, and there is a cluster of the presence of God in 15 to 24. And when you say this, it doesn't mean, when we speak in these terms, that there are no presence of God in the presence of enemies cluster. God's presence is there. And also there are enemies in the presence of God cluster. It's a question of what predominates. And, and, and I think what predominates is designed to tell us something of the story. The story of how we live in a fallen world. And we live appropriately and acceptably to God in the midst of enemies. It's by running to his presence, finding our refuge and our strength in him who is our rock and our helper and our Redeemer. So, again, so, you know, these are not airtight compartments hermetically sealed away from one another. No. No, there's so much overflow in these sections. I'm just speaking about the way the thing flows. And I definitely think there's a flow to the book of the Psalms. I know that's not, a, that's not a universally held opinion. The old, there's an old rabbi, I think I've told you this one time, who said if anybody knew the, the order of the Psalms or the way, that, uh, could understand the, 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 the way that the Psalms work, or uh, I, think, I think he said the order. I think he said if you understand the order of the Psalms, he says you could raise the dead. <laughs> well, I'm not trying to figure out the order of the Psalms, looking to raise the dead, but... I do think there is an order. There's a reason why the Psalms are in the places that they are. They weren't just put together haphazardly. They were put together for a reason that's theological, that is um, looking to track, I think, what God's doing in the world in in terms of the history of redemption. Um, So at least that's my understanding. Any questions at all? On this subject, a besetting sin subject, a repentance subject, we have okay. Um, he, he's allowing you to go first, sir. Okay, Eric. Um, well, yeah, I mean, we're always praying against evil. <laughs> always, I mean, I, I just don't think that you would be praying specific imprecatory prayers on specific people, especially the people in our lives that we're called upon to love, even if there are, are our enemies. But I uh, think that, you know, we have, of course, the option uh, to pray for their conversion. I mean, David did as well. Uh, and, and it's interesting, praying for the conversion of his enemies, um, He's, he, he, in the 51st Psalm, his first, turn me. <laughs> yeah. 
turn me, then I will instruct sinners and sinners will be turned to you. So it really begins with ourselves being turned to the Lord. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's your story of uh, the president Calvin Coolidge back in the day who <laughs> went to church and he was called Silent Cal. And he came back from church and his wife uh, <clears throat> said to him, uh, how was church? He said, good. Well, Silent Cal. <clears throat> what the preacher preach on this morning? Sin. What do you say? What do you say about sin? <laughs> He's against it. <laughs> and certainly, prayer should be praying against everything that's against God. And prayer should be praying for the the blossoming of every good thing, every uh, thing that would be reflective of uh, what kingdom principles and kingdom. Pursuits should should be righteousness, joy, and the peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Yeah, we should be um, ordering our prayers uh, in the light of what the Psalms praise. Just as long as we're not getting personally vengeful. You know, I don't think that the Psalm writers are being personally vengeful. Because I think David's praying as the king. He's praying as the king of the people. He's praying about adversaries like the Philistines and. People who would harm and, and kill and devastate his, his nation and his land. And, and then also I think there's certain uh, imprecatory psalms that pray for things that are just out of the sense of, 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 the, of the wound and the hurt that the people of the nation of Israel went through. I'm thinking of the latter ones, like 137, where he's praying that... Uh, it's taking delight in the fact that the children of the Babylonians would be dashed against the stone. I mean, that's pretty hard to take. Babies being dashed against the stone. But you have to realize that the people of Israel experienced that very thing. Their babies. Their babies being dashed against the stone. So I think when language like that finds itself in, in, a, in, a, in a poem or a song like the book of the Psalms, I think that's what you call poetic justice. I don't think it's really praying that babies should be dashed against a stone, but that there would be a righting of the wrongs. There would be rightful vengeance upon the evildoers. Not, not little babies. I don't think that's what the, the psalmist is doing. He's just speaking about proportional things. What happened to us Oh, that they would know what it feels like. They would know the, the pain, the hurt, the misery, the anguish, the trauma that we have known as a nation, that they would know it, what they've put us through. I think something like that is what you should see. Well, anything else at all, Sue, you had... Uh, this is being recorded for later sermon audio. Do you want me to turn it off? No, I can just think, I can just phrase it in a way. But the environment that I'm in a lot, um, I'm just thinking of like Christians, and it can be any environment, that um, start to tend to be works related. And, you know, it could be on a, a different level. But like always setting up things to do, always spiritual things, always and trying to get everybody to be part of that. And then, like, you don't see lives that are backed up by that. You know, always learning, always trying to, you know, involve you in things. And yet, you know, and I work with Christians and non-Christians, so the non-Christian people say, this is what Christians are like. Or from my own I'm sort of in the middle here because if I am invited to all kinds of things, I have a problem myself with feeling guilty if I don't do everything that's put out there mm -hmm. to do. Mm -hmm. um, and I just really been praying about that to be strong in the Lord and to know that that's not what I need to do personally. And sometimes it might be. 
but it's sort of a balance of yeah, I think that's what well, you've answered the question. It's it's a matter of balance. It is a matter of balance. Uh, David Murray has a, a website. He's a pastor out in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He's written a number of books, and I've heard him speak on a couple of occasions. He's a he's a really good guy. And uh, David Murray, uh, his website, I believe it is, is called Head, Heart, and Hand. And uh, what he's looking to indicate there is that the Christian life involves all three. It involves, and some Christians just gravitate towards the head stuff. We're avid readers, we're avid thinkers, we want to figure everything out about theology, we want to go back into church history, we we want to just have everything, all of our theological ducks all in a row. And, um, you know, so when you uh, see some of these guys preach, they're just grappling with such ideas that you're wondering if they're ever talking to anybody but themselves. They're just all caught up in a world of their own notions. Um, Pastor Martin once told the story of a guy who was uh, uh, endeavoring to see if he was growing in, preach, in, in his ability to preach. He asked his, uh, uh, his, his pastor to hear a sermon that he preached and to give him his opinion. And uh, so he preached his heart out. And then his pastor said to him, well, you know, very interesting sermon. But perhaps the better thing would be to, instead of trying to get something out of your head, look to put something into mine. <laughs> and, and so there are certain Christians that are just that way. That's how they're built. Um, and then there, of course, there are Christians of the heart. Their Christians are all wrapped up in their feelings. Their Christians are all wrapped up in the only thing they'll ever read is a devotional uh, book. Only thing they'll ever uh, think about is the you know their relationship to God in terms of uh, what's their spiritual temperature at any particular part of the day, and they're very towards that kind of piety. And then there are the hand people. Uh, in an organization like the Salvation Army, when they're involved in so many different works of, um, you know, famine relief or flood relief and things like that, you would probably think that that's going to be a main emphasis. And certainly when the Army began, out of Christian convictions, there was very little concern for the poor. I might even say that's true in the world today, among Christian people. People are just concerned about their own abundance and their own um, comforts. And the people of the hand need to perhaps shake us up a bit and say there's more to the Christian life than that. Because Jesus said, when I was hungry, you fed me. And when I was in prison, you visited me. And you know, So that is part of true religion and undefiled before our God and Father is this. That you should visit the widows and the orphans and their affliction and keep yourself unspotted from the world. And we can do both. And we can, we can do both, or, or all three. And be Christians who endeavor to engage in all three activities. But again, you are only one person. You can't do everything. You know, people try to make you feel guilty about a number of things, about evangelism. Make you try to feel guilty of whether you pray, pray sufficiently um, three times a day. Morning, noon, and evening. Psalm 55 says that. <laughs> They'll try to lay all kinds of burdens on you. Um, yeah. I remember the fellow here that just wanted the church to be all up in arms about abortion and get involved in uh, crisis pregnancy centers and to get involved in, uh, at the time I think it was Operation Rescue. Let's get out in the streets and uh, block uh, abortion clinics. And if you weren't doing that, you just weren't serving the Lord. And there are people that will come along and say, if you're not part of my ministry and the thing I'm concerned about, the thing I'm burdened about, then you're not really concerned about the things of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And again, there are people that will gravitate to a whole bunch of things. Well, to me, that's the genius of the church. If I, We had people involved here who just real, realized that you know, the church is the assembly of the people who are involved in all kinds of things. Get part of the church, and let's you know you can tell us what you're doing, and we'll pray for you. 
We can tell, tell us what you're doing and we'll support you to our ability to do it. But don't think you're going to change the church into your burden. Into, because the church has its own mandate from God. The church has its own distinctive work to be doing. And that distinctive work is defined for us in Scripture. Unless you can show us in Scripture, every Christian needs to be involved in campus ministries. Every Christian needs to be concerned about going to the mission field. Every Christian, or at least if you, if you haven't addressed it, then you're just not a spiritual person at all. If you haven't at least said, Lord, I'm willing to go. No, God doesn't call me to go. I'm uh, just, I'm not going to be made guilty over your sense of what we, I should be doing. The Lord told me that. No, he didn't. Or at least he didn't tell me. So we're the stalemate on that one, aren't we? And if scripture doesn't make it mandatory for everyone, then it's just not part of the general duty of the Christian church or the, or, or the, the general duty of every Christian who's a member of Christ's body. So don't feel guilty. You got, you got a lot on your plate, Sue. We, we know that. All of us have a lot on our plate. And it's, it, you, know, it's, you know, you can just say to those people, you know, th- thank you for the invitation. But you know, I have all this stuff here to do. I wonder if you'd pray for me as I carry out my ministry with my grandchildren, or I carry out my ministry with my Sunday school group, or I carry out my ministry with who, whatever it would be that you are doing. And ask them to pray for you. See if you make them feel guilty. <laughs> well, thank you guys. You kept the questions coming. We filled our time this morning. Not just to fill the time, but I hope the questions have let us down some uh, encouraging and uh, some edifying roads. So let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this time we could spend considering these matters and we pray in the wide diversity of matters we've covered this morning. You would be pleased to give us wisdom from Scripture, give us light and understanding, give us a sense of um, just the joy of being a people that can live in your presence and look to you for all the resources that we need to fulfill your will. And Lord, we, we know this is not a world that you've called us to live in just thinking every problem is going to go away because we need to walk by faith and not by sight and we're not in glory. We pray that in this world where we are encompassed with so many infirmities and so many uh, troubles in our own heart and mind, so many things that uh, are part of the sin that so easily besets us, we pray for grace to run with with. with to run with endurance, the race that is set before us, not looking at ourselves, not looking at our past, not looking at our, our sins, not looking at other places for assistance and help, but looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Help us to commit our souls to him in well-doing. Help us to commit our activities each day to your care, and that you would and strengthen us, encourage us, lead us, guide us, and ultimately that you would perfect us in your presence as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.